Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. We have introduced a new show here called The Chopping Block, where insiders chop it up about the latest in crypto. And this show does not feature me, but it features four really interesting crypto investors who are Haseeb Qureshi, managing partner at Dragonfly Capital, Tom Schmidt, partner at Dragonfly, Robert Leshner, who unfortunately is not here today, founder and CEO of Compound Labs and managing partner at Robot Ventures, and Tarun Chitra, co-founder of Gauntlet and managing partner at Robot Ventures. In each episode, Haseeb, Tom, Robert, and Tarun, although not Robert today, will discuss recent events in crypto. We will also be releasing these conversations on the podcast, so you can always tune in later, but the live streams will always be the earliest you can catch the shows. And in general, the videos will also have the visual content, whereas the podcast will be audio only. We launched with a 2021 recap with a bunch of superlatives, and I think people really loved it. My favorite category was Best Mechanism, nominated by Tarun. And I am just here now to introduce these people and to explain why it is that there is a live stream on the channel and why I am not a part of it. With that all said, I will turn things over to your moderator to see. Okay, catch you later. Good luck. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Laura. Okay, I'm taking over moderating duties from Tarun because uh, I'm supposed to be the moderator, so I'll just take that. Uh, Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple weeks, the usually four, but currently three of us get together and give an industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intros for everybody on the team. Tom is the DeFi maven and master of memes. Tarun is the Giga Brain and Grand Poobah at Gauntlet. And myself, Haseeb, I am the humble hype man at Dragonfly. All four of us are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice or legal advice or even life advice. So with that being said, uh, we are, this is now currently just, you know, a little behind the scenes. This is the second time of us recording this intro. So we started bantering a bunch about Omicron and um, I, I'll, I'll save you, I'll summarize the, the previous discussion, which is basically that Omicron, very bad. Lots of people are sick. So for those of you who, uh, who have not had a run in with, uh, with the, with the, with the OMI, please stay safe. Although at this point, most people we know, uh, you know, including possibly ourselves have gotten Omicron. Actually, have, have either of you, do you think you guys have gotten yeah. Omicron? Yeah. I'm fin- I, I oh, had have? it over Christmas. Yeah. Oh, shoot. It was, was fine. It? it was literally a cold. Honestly, I was just more annoyed about having to stay at home. I'm Fair fine. enough. Yeah, You're it's fine. fine. I'm, I'm, I, just, I'm I, just staying at home anyway. Yeah, I got on a flight, uh, and I, I think I mentioned this already on our last call. Uh, when, I was on a, when I was on a flight, I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get Omicron from this. I suspect, I mean, the Omicron uh, rates of asymptomatic infection are still quite high, right? Isn't it something like 50%, I want to guess, that are asymptomatic? Yeah, I, I, think, I think of a lot of the people I know, more, more than half seem asymptomatic. They just happen to test because like, someone made them test and then like to go to something, and they're like, we're positive, but like didn't know. So, 
<laughs> yeah, I, I strongly suspect that I'm probably asymptomatic because I, given how contagious this thing is, there's just no way that I haven't gotten it at this point. But it's good. Hopefully, this is how it ends or ends, whatever ends, whatever you want to define. Yeah. The, the definition of end. Yeah. It does seem like at this point, COVID is just going to be endemic. But, you know, I've said that enough times now that it does seem like this is the one saga that never wants to end. Hmm. But, okay, well, let's, let's move on, given that we um, are, are running a little bit behind today. So the big news of the week uh, has naturally been the market drawdown. And it's been pretty brutal. It's not just been constrained to crypto. A lot of asset classes are getting hammered right now. But the broad drawdown in crypto has really been accelerated by... Well, it was kind of kicked off by the FOMC meeting, the um, basically the Fed getting together and kind of signaling that they're going to be engaging in rate hikes earlier than originally anticipated, in large part due to the surprisingly large inflation that's been hitting consumer price indexes as of the last couple months. So it seems like markets across the board are pricing in faster rate hikes. And faster rate hikes, generally what that means, for those who don't pay much attention to macro, uh, a rate hike basically means that interest rates are going up which means that the opportunity cost of capital, you know, what you could be making if you're in a safe asset, is higher. And if it's, if it's more attractive now to invest in safe assets, that means that risky assets, growth assets, like you know, growth stocks and like crypto, tend to go down in value because the relative value of holding them in a portfolio goes down. So it's kind of unsurprising. I've been, I've been chatting with a lot of folks about this for a while, that inflation in many ways is actually not going to be long-term great for crypto. It's In some sense, it's kind of good for Bitcoin because it's like, okay, Bitcoin, blah, 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 inflation hedge. But in the other sense, look, if, if people raise rates, crypto is a growth asset and it's very risky and the demand for growth assets goes down when, when rates are higher. Can, so, can, um, we, can we also just say that empirically, Bitcoin does not look like an inflation hedge in the last 12 months <laughs> at all? Yes, yes. <laughs> Mm-mm. Bitcoin doesn't really look like anything. It doesn't look like gold. It doesn't look like inflation hedge. It, it, it is pet rock. It's starting to look it a little bit like the, equities. It is pet rock this year. It truly is. I mean, if it doesn't look like anything, that sounds like an uncorrelated asset to me. And that's something you want in your portfolio. <laughs> you know? it, it is funny how those are the two memes, right? The one meme yeah. is that, oh, it's like gold. It's like an inflation hedge, which like gold is not that great of an inflation hedge either. But it's like an inflation hedge. But then also it's uncorrelated to other things in your portfolio. Yeah. And obviously those two things cannot both be true. But um, I bet you could make a uncorrelated is the best bet. I bet you could make a community out of like a like brownie emotion randomly moving like asset and and just like you know it's uh you know going to be priced a different you know thing every day and I bet people would love that you know it's people love their sort of uh you know read the tea leaves and assign meaning to to different assets and this this is this won't run out of meaning right randomness will never run out of meaning for people. I, I, I like that, that. I like that you've become the Sun Tzu of the casino. Me, I'm, I'm yes. yeah, trying to yeah <laughs> draw, draw draw meaning from everything. I think I think the general consensus is yeah macro macro sell off. But um, as I was noting on one of our many takes here, there is you know some you know secular outperformance. Like NFTs have actually done really well. I think um, OpenSea is like breaking all time high volumes, and like um, a lot of the floor prices and some of these NFTs keep moving up. So it almost sort of says that like the people have sort of suspected this for a long time, and you see this a little bit in the data when looking at um, addresses of people who are engaging with NFTs and crypto and people who are, you know, trading other types of assets. It's like the NFT community is almost sort of, it's overlapping, but a little bit separate from the people who are, uh, you know, uh, doing yield farming and and buying Bitcoin and stuff like that. So um, pretty interesting to see like that market, which people have always said is is very representative of, you know, crazy froth and and frenzy of the markets actually do well as these other growth assets are, are sort of drawing down. 
Well, I also think the emerging growth assets, like the assets that like didn't, that maybe uh, didn't track beta relative to their sort of like they didn't track like the market expectation of gr- the growth assets last year, but they are still growth assets. Some of those have done really well in crypto. I mean, I think the biggest examples of those are like everything in the Cosmos ecosystem, like 10xing, mm. um, like in the last two weeks, like has been kind of wild rel- relative to ETH and Bitcoin. And then near, uh, so like Osmosis, near Atom, those are like all three insane winners. And like I've seen a lot of people talk about this like long, near, short Solana trade based on open interest. And it does seem like the growth winners of last year are sort of like rolling into the growth winners of this year, which seem to be different layer ones. So I think, you know, it, within the drawdown, you'll find these kind of like separate things. And of course, Ken Griffin gave us a present today, which I think like honestly moved the crypto market. <laughs> everyone, everyone do you want to like, explain Cid- this? Yeah, so um, Citadel Securities, uh, HFT firm, prop shop, not a hedge fund like Citadel, like, you know, they're, they're two separate entities. But Citadel Securities is the one that I would say most people who were uh, GameStop connoisseurs are angry at uh, because Citadel Securities is the market maker, designated market maker on a bunch of different exchanges, but also uh, powers Robinhood. Um, and sort of when people couldn't get their orders in, they blame Robinhood sort of was like Citadel didn't take our orders. And so people kind of hate them for that. But Citadel Securities is probably one of the most successful market makers of the last 30 years. I'd say Jump, Citadel, Optiver probably are all in that echelon. And Citadel Securities is a private company. Most most uh, market makers are proprietary trading companies. They trade their own capital. They don't raise money from outside investors like a hedge fund or a mutual fund. And the interesting thing today was that Citadel Securities decided to sell some of itself to Sequoia, famous VC, and Paradigm, uh, sort of probably the most prominent crypto VC. And I think it's kind of interesting that because it signaled a lot to the market that Citadel, which you know is famous, Ken Griffin at CEO is famous for constantly, for lack of a better phrase, shitting on crypto uh, repeatedly in very in many public settings, effectively sort of saying, "Okay, okay, okay, I saw everyone at Jump get really rich, so now I'm finally FOMOing in." Uh, if I were to give you my my rough assessment of that, what happened? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to know exactly what it means. It, it was a very strange headline because there was very little in there about crypto. Like there was, I think I saw one vague illusion that Matt uh, from Paradigm basically said, like, yeah, they're going to get into other asset classes, including crypto, and that was it. And so there wasn't. I mean, the other thing, of course, they're a market maker, right? They're not a directional investor, and so it doesn't. To me, it kind of seemed a little strange. Obviously, I clearly don't know what the broader story is behind this that makes it attractive. Because it was a pretty big financing. It was like a billion plus that uh, total between Sequoia and Paradigm. Um, so I don't know, Tarun, what, 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 what do you think is behind it? Well, a couple interesting things. One is I feel like the deployment rate of venture funds has... So there, there's kind of been this weird compression between public market funds and venture funds over the last, uh, I'd say, two to three years, where there's, a, there's starting to be blends of investment styles of people who are supposed to be the, doing these private investments for longer times. There's people doing public investments that are rotating their portfolios uh, consistently. And that's come from the rise of crossover funds. Uh, so crossover funds usually trade public equity books. So they trade 
stocks, um, at, at, you know, billions of dollars of stocks. But they also have private, you know, sort of venture style investing. And they are much more aggressive in their venture style investing, um, both on the valuation level. Uh, so they, they're willing to pay much higher prices than sort of traditional venture capitalists who are always trying to get a 10x return instead of a 3x return. In some ways, they started beating venture capitalists at their own game in a very large upswing bull market. Uh, and so what you've seen is like the biggest funds have just started raising even more money to deploy even faster to try to keep up with these crossover funds. And I feel like this has got to be a big deployment for both of these funds. E even at their size, I think this is a, a quite an extreme amount of management fees being earned. Tom, any take from your side? Yeah, I think um, a lot of people are obviously reading the crypto element here. Um, as, as you know, we have a crypto circle and people read, you know, Paradigm doing this deal. But I'm curious why Sequoia is doing this deal. I mean, they seem to be getting more into crypto. So I don't actually know how much crypto flavoring there, there is. It, it seems like, as you said, maybe a testament to like, you know, capital markets sort of sort of merging um, across stages, across sectors. You know, I already was there was the Andreessen restructuring last year to be able to trade liquid assets as well as uh, Sequoia looking to you know, hold assets pre or post IPO. So uh, everything is everything, as they say. And um, maybe that's kind of what we're seeing in capital markets as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm entirely speculating, but I can imagine that now that Sequoia has entered into this evergreen structure, so people don't remember, you know, I think it was earlier, or late last year, Sequoia announced that they were moving away from the traditional fund LP model into one gigantic vehicle that every investor into Sequoia is just in the vehicle and they don't get, you know, any um, specific liquidity based on individual investments, but you're just like along for the ride for everything that Sequoia does or something like that. I, I don't know the exact details, uh, but I can imagine that, look, if you're basically playing every single stage of the market beyond IPO even, then having a relationship with a market maker, uh, especially, you know, one of the most dominant ones like, like Citadel uh, is, is going to be very strategic to you. Now for Paradigm, I'm not, again, I'm not entirely sure the, the, clearly, there's some crypto component that's larger than what's being intimated in the uh, press release, which was just, you know, one line about, hey, getting into other asset classes. I guess it'll be, well, I guess we'll know soon enough once we start seeing how Citadel gets into the fray. So interesting story, one worth tracking. Um, I'm curious, do you guys know what were the biggest drawdowns in? We mentioned, you know, some of the assets that didn't draw down, um, like Near and Cosmos Ecosystem. What, what, what got the brunt of it? I don't have the, uh, I guess, uh, Actual rankings, but I think, you know, qualitatively, it seems like the assets that really depended on uh, sort of a lot of leverage or yield farming, either implicitly or explicitly. Um, and so to mine, that kind of looks like Ohm and Spell. Um, so Olympus Dow and Abracadabra, which, you know, basically, you know, relied on their communities or on the protocol to buy more assets at a discount in order to buy more of their own assets and, and sort of, you know, prop up these these uh, uh, communities in sort of this this spiral Naturally, when there's a large market drawdown, um, you know, there are not a lot of buyers. We saw like a lot of you know, liquidations on the uh, Fuse, Olympus Dow uh, uh, lending pools where a lot of people were, you know, getting, again, getting, getting leverage on their own. Um, and so naturally, I think you know, those started to unwind. And I think, uh, you know, Ohm is down uh, quite a bit, like 50, 60 percent from, from, from the peak. But I don't know, actually, what the, what the specifically the most damaged assets were. Yeah, I was I was just looking at CoinGecko's um, like category based capitalization losses, 
And so like, yeah, a rebase tokens and ohm, ohm forks were the, the top. Um, but things that were kind of high up there were like GameFi, prediction markets, play to earn. So I feel like a lot of the like, ver- and metaverse tokens. So a lot of the things that were really, really hyped over the last six months is like, hey, like people are buying land in Decentraland. I think a lot of those types of assets really took a big whopping. Yeah, I did see some big GameFi drawdowns. But yeah, it makes sense to, to Tom's point is that a lot of these assets are implicitly leveraged from the way that they're uh, structured. And so if you basically have like a leverage system, then of course, when markets draw down, it's going gonna, it's gonna to lose much more than everything else. Um, okay, so moving on in news, uh, one interesting piece that got a lot of attention and conversation going was uh, Moxie Marlin Spike's blog post about Web3. It was entitled Web3 First Impressions. And for those who did not read it, I can give you a very brief kind of TLDR. Basically, you know, Moxie, um, so Moxie was the f- creator of Signal Protocol. He's a very famous cryptographer. And um, he's been kind of roughly associated with a lot of the um, sort of early cypherpunk movement, uh, but has not been very involved in crypto except for his involvement into MobileCoin, which is a private cryptocurrency built on top of, uh, not built on top of, but integrated into Signal, the, the application. And so he was sort of reflecting on, you know, hey, I haven't spent a lot of time really using NFTs and uh, what, we, what is now called Web3. I'm going to try it out. He did. And a lot of what he reflects on is the uh, two, two main ideas I felt like in his post. One was that uh, the notion of trying to create a totally decentralized web is maybe a flawed enterprise. And the original web tried to be fully decentralized and they realized over time that this just wasn't realistic. One, because people don't run their own servers. And two, because there's a natural... Uh, centralizing force to creating quality platforms that people want to spend time on. And then second is basically his critique that most of quote unquote web three and NFTs aren't even that decentralized to begin with, because there are a lot of, you know, servers, there aren't really even, you know, hash, uh, hash pointers to content that's supposed to be embedded in these NFTs. Basically there's a lot of uh, reliance on centralized parties like Infura, like, um, uh, you know, like the, uh, you know, IPFS nodes that are, kind of freely running. And for a lot of these, they aren't even hosted on Infura or IPFS. They're just hosted on regular websites. Uh, and so that was the overall uh, critique as I summarize it. Tom, Tarun, you guys have thoughts? I have many thoughts. Uh, yeah, this was very annoying for me this week. I think I had maybe six or seven different people who are sort of crypto adjacent send this to me and ask me my thoughts on it. And it's sort of similar like when those Tether Truther articles come out and they're like, hey, have you have you heard about this? And it's like, yes, <laughs> I have heard about this, actually. Yeah, I, I feel conflicted where I think, obviously, for someone of, you know, with Moxie's background, he understands, I think, a lot of the sort of, you know, concepts that are, that are important to understand in crypto, um, which such as, you know, the difference between interface and an implementation and a client and a protocol that uh, uh, and the client that might implement that protocol. And so I think a lot of his critiques of Web3 a, are not new to anybody who works in crypto. Um, I think we all know these these things are are, are happening. But in, in my mind, it's sort of a straw man argument where I don't think anybody in crypto actually thinks that every single layer of the, of the stack is maximally decentralized. Um, I think we've sort of said, you know, over the past years, like the meme has been decentralization is a spectrum. Um, and that gets reflected uh, not just in, in protocols, but in every layer of the stack. So um, of course, when we say something like, oh, yeah, well, of course, you know, MetaMask is using Infura to look something up or people are looking at OpenSea to like as a shortcut to get the NFT data. 
you know, sure, those are, are choices that you know this particular client is making, but it doesn't actually you know, impact the the underlying you know, protocol choices. Like the image might still be stored on IPFS, or like you know Ethereum is still going to be running. No one thinks that you know this thing is all going to be decentralized at every single layer. Of course, there's benefits to centralization, but I, I think it, it's sort of this this weird critique where it's like, hey, crypto is not maximally decentralized. Look at all these points of centralization. We know, and, and that's fine, but that doesn't really erode the value prop. I think the other element here is critiquing specific client implementation choices, right? I don't like the way that you know MetaMask is implemented. I don't like the way that OpenSea is implemented. That's that's fine. I think not everybody's in love with the way these these thing, things are built. And hey, maybe this could be more decentralized. Maybe this could be more centralized. Like there, there's a spectrum of, of choices, and and we already see you know different types of you know, websites and different types of wallets um, choosing different points along that path. Um, but I think to sort of say that you know because people are looking at their NFT data on OpenSea, that's like an indictment of NFTs as a concept. It's just, it's just kind of ridiculous. The same way I could say, well, I could build a really shitty signal implementation that, uh, you know, uh, maybe doesn't actually do the end-to-end encryption correctly, or maybe like does stuff in clear text, and therefore a signal of protocol is crappy. Like clearly that's a bad argument. Um, so I thought it was kind of absurd. A lot of it also kind of felt a little bit sour grapesy to me, where um, MobileCoin is, you know, this project that he's associated with, has not really been caught up in any of the Web3 hype. It's it just sort of this, I think it's just very recently been integrated into Signal and, and sort of you know, taking baby steps. But it, it feels, obviously, A, they will have to make some centralization choices at, at some point around, you know, building a block explorer or maybe building other wallets. But it also feels like it's been kind of left a little bit out of the conversation. So I, I don't know. I, I overall was not a very big fan and felt like there's not a lot of new information and the arguments were overall uh, pretty bad in my opinion. Tarun, your impressions? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, I honestly, I think most of this criticism comes from the fact that developer tooling is kind of nascent and also like a lot of the things that people really focus on, I guess, you know, have some warts um, under the covers. But the one thing I took a lot of offense with, especially given that he has mobile coin in Signal, was this claim that, um, hey, like there's barely any cryptography used. Which I agree for NFTs, no offense. The developers of NFTs are significantly shittier than those of DeFi or Layer 1s. They're just not as good of developers. So like, they're not going to be doing hard cryptography. right? This is not in their veins. And he was kind of comparing apples to oranges, I felt like, with that. But the other thing is, a lot of the newest cryptography that has been created in the last 10 to 15 years... The way it went from academic research to production was via cryptocurrency. And that's, you know, a lot of those systems are still at the phase where the UX hasn't been figured out such that the average user can take advantage of things like zero-knowledge proofs where you don't have to store all your data and you can also do sort of private computations. And I think a lot of that stuff was really implemented in, in, in this space. It's just like, has it's just, slower to kind of get to adoption, sort of in the same way that like RSA and ECDSA weren't instantly adopted in the 80s when they were created, right? It took like almost 10 years for e-commerce sites to actually kind of force HTTPS to modify itself and have this kind of SSL trigger, uh, which is like, this is to take advantage of this cryptography that every time you buy something on Amazon, encrypts your password, encrypts your credit card number, etc. And I think that component is very much missing. And, and you know, to one of the, the comments uh, in the chat with regard to kind of this idea that like most 
of the metadata is not on a decentralized file system or it's on a file system that requires pinning is that a lot of the stuff for actual data availability and which is the access to data like NFT metadata is still kind of a lot of the cryptography for making that actually feasible is still just getting to production right now. And so I think things like Celestia, which is this really awesome data availability protocol where, you know, effectively you can kind of get some of the guarantees you expect of a normal file system while also having, you know, thousands of validators. Things like these are actually like coming into production this year. I think a lot of the things come down to the fact that there are a lot of quote unquote web two developers. I hate I hate the phrase to start with. But who like look at crypto and they're like, oh, I see an API. I'm just gonna like make a little website and like connect to the API. And you know, obviously people who've been in crypto want new users, so they put out these APIs. But a lot of the new developers don't try to go run their own nodes. They don't try to go do a lot of this stuff. And I think I think a lot of his frustration also comes from the fact that he didn't even go one layer deeper into how these systems work, some of the newest systems, what kind of things are kind of on the frontier. He instead went to kind of like, oh, like it's, that's almost like saying, oh, Coinbase, so centralized. I just don't believe this Uniswap thing exists. And I, I, I it, di- it did remind me a little bit of uh, when SBF kind of was like, DEXs can never work and whatever, you know, in 2019, in case anyone forgets that. I had a somewhat different reaction to the piece. I mean, I, I see the points that you guys are making. The central thrust of his piece, as far as I saw it, were kind of two points that he was making. So one, I think it, it was kind of like, okay, look, I don't know much about NFTs. I'm going to figure out how they work. And like, yeah, he's right. You know, you sort of pull back the mask and like, yeah, there's a lot of kind of bad design decisions in a lot of NFTs today. Yeah, okay, cool. Good point. Well taken. The second and broader point, I think, is more about the Web3 meme than it is about any specific indictment of a specific protocol, right? So there, there are kind of two points, I think, that are important that he's making. One is that, look, the Web3 story is this broad story that we're going to remake the internet to become this new decentralized version of itself. And he basically claims that, like, look, this meta-narrative about the internet is, is poorly founded and bullshit and it's just not going to work. And to be honest, I, I kind of agree with him. I, I don't believe in this kind of broader Web3 thesis that everything on the web is going to become re-decentralized or whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, I think a lot of things on the web just actually work. They actually work quite well. And we figured out ways to make them work. And putting everything within the context of a decentralized blockchain doesn't really make sense. And I don't think it's economical. And I don't think that's how the, the internet's going to evolve. So now that's okay. Then he further goes on to indict, you know, a lot of the services that people use and say, look, this thing is not really decentralized. And you guys are making a lot of centralizing so a lot of assumptions of trust that reintroduce centralization. And this is the natural way that things go. It's just like, it's the it's sort of the lowest energy level state that a system is always going to fall back to. Is this going to find centralized actors and rely on them? And I think about that, he's also right. And I think his indictment of saying, look, if OpenSea APIs stop showing a particular NFT, it's almost like having that NFT not exist anymore. And it's true. I think it, it, it is the case that we do overly rely on OpenSea within the NFT world, which does weaken the, the value proposition for NFTs as being these sort of like, well, look, it's only on the blockchain. And as long as it's on the blockchain, it still exists. Well, for all you know, practical purposes, it's like saying, look, uh, just because I deleted your bank account and like say you're blacklisted from holding a bank account doesn't mean that you can't have money anymore. You can still hold around cash and you know, buy things at grocery stores. But for all practical purposes, it does efface a lot of the value proposition. So I think he has good points, but I also think that they don't, 
go quite as far as actually indicting the entire enterprise of like, okay, are NFTs valuable? Do they make sense? Are they a kind of unique innovation? One thing he never talks to is like, okay, what is the point of NFTs? And to my mind, I think the point of NFTs is to have a digital system of property rights for non-fungible assets, right? That's the point of NFTs. It's not anything more magical than that. It's just like a titling system for assets that we think should be titled in a neutral, credibly, credibly neutral, global, permissionless, enforceable way. And I think it's a good idea. I think, I think we've, we've found at least a small set of use cases so far for which that makes sense. Um, and I feel like his piece doesn't really tackle that, which I feel like is the core of why NFTs matter, not because their metadata is decentralized. I agree. Um, I also think he obviously didn't talk about any of the you know, financial stuff, which in my mind is what makes us way more interesting than like, you know, slinging NFTs around or making like decentralized Twitter. Maybe that will happen. Maybe it won't. I also agree. There's a lot of issues with, I think that sort of sort of concept, but clearly there's like product market fit for decentralized financial services that are um, in many ways superior to the, to the centralized versions that, that we have today. I agree. I, I don't think he was trying to talk about that, right? Like specifically. About I, and, and I think that's sort of why I found the argument a little weird was that, you know, I, I, Web3 does feel like a little bit of this marketing thing meant to ensnare FANG engineers to work at, in crypto, or manga <laughs> engineers to work at crypto companies, which is fine. Right. That, that's, it's fair. It's a marketing campaign. But uh, I, I do think, like, if you ignore stable coins and you're talking about anything in crypto, then, like, what are you doing? Like, that's the biggest mm. used product, period. And somehow yeah. that had, his whole thing about writing this derivatives exchange ignored the existence of stable coins, which is why he could do it in the first place. And there was a lot of, I felt like there was a lot of kind of half-truths sitting there. And, and that was sort of my, like, oh, That's well, fair. maybe maybe you should have actually gone, like, one step further. Especially if you have Signal integrating, like, a lot of very low-level cryptography. Yeah, no, I think uh, all good points. Okay, let's move on. There was uh, a really interesting, a couple interesting pieces of drama this week. Otherwise, a relatively slow news, week, slow news week. So I think is is worth uh, throwing into the mix. Cryptoland. So Cryptoland, uh, for those who are not familiar, it kind of popped up on the scene uh, in the last week. Basically, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to butcher this. So Tom, please correct me if I'm wrong. A bunch of guys got together, and it's definitely guys, got together and decided that they were going to crowdsource buying an island. And uh, I think it's like in Fiji or something, near Fiji. Uh, they're going to buy an island and um, it's going to be all crypto people. And they made a video. So they made a video. It's like apparently they spent a lot of money to finance this video. <laughs> do you have, do you, I, I feel like you know the details of the story better than I do. Yeah, the video is not, not loading, unfortunately. But yes, uh, so they have spent $500,000 of their own money to acquire the rights or the permits or something to build this sort of crypto themed island in Fiji. And people are obviously comparing it to, to Fire Festival in the sense that it seems like they have this insane idea for building some over-the-top island paradise, but they really do not have the, the background or it seems the logistics to make this happen. So there's this insane video, which, which is not loading, uh, which apparently they spent a million dollars in a year on. I, I, I think people have different, their own different objections um, to the video. The animation is, is super creepy. I, but I think the, the main thing is that it, it's almost like an alien landed and uh, you know, sucked up all like the top 50 memes about about cryptocurrency, like, you know, buying Lambos and going to the moon and Satoshi or, or whatever, and tried to stick them into this video with, with no context. And so it's just jam packed with a lot of very cringy cryptocurrency references. And frankly, it does not like, like, pay, like any place 
I would like to visit. Yeah, it's just, just a bit disturbing, um, I, I would say, overall. And so now they're trying to raise more money to actually build this thing out. Uh, they're selling these homes, which are being represented as NFTs. Again, kind of questionable uh, for like $1.2 million. So overall, it, it feels very fire Festival-y of having this big promise and raising a lot of money. Kind of unclear if they'd be able to deliver on it. But I think really the, the video and the cringiness of it and the musical number um, kind, of, kind of threw people off. So to be clear, that is really where the story begins. Uh, is with this crazy uh, you know, crowdfunding video and whatever. Then my understanding is that um, they got into some Twitter tussles with people who did not respond as positively as they were hoping they would to this entire enterprise. So apparently there's, there's one person on Twitter who they hit with a cease and desist letter, and they started sending out a bunch of these cease and desist letters to people for making fun of them on Twitter and supposedly for spreading misinformation about the about the island. <laughs> so it, it, the whole thing just, it seems like just a complete shit show. And overall, uh, nobody ends up looking good at the end of this, especially not crypto as a culture. I only have one thing to comment about this, which is my mom sent me that video and said, is this what the metaverse is? <laughs> so, I, I, you know. I would prefer going there in the metaverse rather than trying to fly out to this you know, most likely doomed doomed island you know i think going there for kicks would be be kind of funny but it, it was very 2017 in my mind which was like kind of crypto adjacent but not like really and people raising money on these big promises and there's like no accountability and it, it, i just had kind of 2017 flashbacks when i was when i was watching the video yeah there was something i think tom you were telling me something about like trying to get plumbing onto the island or something? Yes, they- yes. In the Discord, people were asking very simple questions, such as, how are you going to get utilities on the island? And uh, apparently they have a plan to route all of the um, water and sewage and electricity in a pipe um, under the ocean to the mainland of Fiji, and that's going to be uh, their, their utility solution. So, you know, it's you, you kind of want to vet the team's background when you're, when you're backing someone. <laughs> and make sure it's the right team for the right you know, project. So, yeah, yeah, good luck to CryptoLand backers, I guess. No, good for them. Well, um, you know, obviously we don't give investment advice on the show, but I would encourage you to do your own research before you invest into a crypto land parcel because there, there may not be uh, utilities when you get there. I, I mean, I do love just like the, the hot spot of doing like, you know what? Fire Festival didn't do it because they didn't own the island. You know, let's like try to own the island, bro. <laughs> like that's like basically the attitude. <laughs> It does seem like, look, that's the other thing is these investment DAOs are getting bigger and bigger. This is kind of an extension of an investment DAO effectively. And, you know, we started with Constitution, then we're moving on to Blockbuster. Pretty soon, I mean, now effectively we're trying to buy an island and it doesn't seem like the end is in sight for what these uh, investment DAOs are going to try to go for. Yeah, I actually love this whole investment DAO thing. There's LinksDAO now, which is trying to buy a golf course. There's Krause House, which is trying to buy an NBA team. Um, I'm trying to think what else. There's a couple other like, let's pool together money and then go buy a real world asset. And it's very sort of sloppy. It's sort of like early ICO. It's like no one really knows how to do it or like what the oversight should be. But I love the energy and uh, hopefully we'll see like, you know, Kickstarter or Indiegogo on steroids um, in the next year. But um, yeah, not holding my breath. Yeah, interesting. None of these are very close though to actually purchasing their targets, right? I don't believe so. They can raise a lot of money uh, as you sort of saw with Constitution DAO. But I think the actual execution of how do we buy this thing? Who owns it? How does the DAO actually interact with it? How do we make sure we're not 
creating a security, I think, is uh, uh, kind of the, the tricky bit. Not not to show the DAO that all three of us are in, but PleaserDAO has successfully been able to purchase off-chain items like from the Department of Justice. So it is possible to, to avoid kind of these things. It just takes a long time. And I feel like right now there are a lot of people who maybe made a little money on NFTs and they're like, well, I want to do something with it and I don't necessarily want to, and I want to keep it on chain. And so a DAO is a natural place to park that capital. Of course, you know, figuring out how to get the DAO to purchase things means you now have to go to the real world. And I think a lot of people are learning once they collect the money, then it's actually the hard part. Collecting the money is the easy part. The hard part's actually like the, you know. I feel like the lesson people have learned is that spectacle pays. Mm -hmm. And the bigger spectacle and the more outlandish and the more crazy, the more eyeballs it's going to get and therefore the better it's going to do. And that, that feels like, in a way, a kind of broad lesson that crypto teaches you, which I don't know is the right lesson to take away. But it's like, look, if Elon Musk like, just tweets out a bunch of crazy stuff about Dogecoin, it's like, oh, okay, that's how, that's how you win is you just go bigger and louder and more crazy. And, you know, Constitution DAO is a perfect example of that. But I think, it, I think you're right, is that like the, the logic of it just keeps ratcheting up until eventually it hits a wall. So strange times that we are Spe living in. Speaking um, of other controversial NFTs. Yes, speaking of other controversial NFTs. So there's been some drama in the last week about a Pudgy Penguin NFT, which those of you who are not familiar, it's one of the top NFT collections on Ethereum and OpenSea. As you can imagine, there are these kind of fat, chubby penguins. It's just a general profile picture. So, you know, there's 10,000, 20,000, whatever, some number of them. And um, basically what has happened, so the one thing I noticed about this story, so essentially what happened was that the, um, the NFT project has not been doing amazingly since it initially launched. And the community has gotten very frustrated at the initial founder and founding team of the Pudgy Penguins. And there's been a takeover bid, an attempt to basically cut out the original founding team from the future transaction fees that are generated. So in a lot of these NFTs, not all of them, but certain NFTs, when a transaction is made, a transfer is made of the, uh, of the NFT, uh, part of the purchase price goes to the original founding team as like a tax on future transactions. So a group of uh, creators have decided to go in and wrap the Pudgy Penguins in a proxy contract that basically makes it so that when you transfer the Pudgy Penguins via this proxy contract, the creators don't get a cut anymore. So they basically cut out the creators of this, uh, of this NFT project from any future revenue uh, as essentially like a kind of revolt against the original creators. And they're now, there's now all these talks about how to redo the, okay, it's called the huddle, uh, how the huddle can sort of redo and, and kind of reformulate how the penguin community is going to be put together. And the other thing I will say I saw is a lot of great puns in the headlines for this. So one of them was uh, the, uh, what is it? Pudgy penguins cools off as the community gets upset. Another one is, uh, what, was, what was the one that I saw in the FT? Uh, oh no, it was Coindesk. Coindesk's headline was Pudgy penguins NFT project oust founders as mood turns icy. The mood did turn icy. I, uh, it's, I think that the part that you missed, which I kind of like the most is, um, it's not just wrapping and sticking the penguins in this proxy contract to get rid of the fees, but in theory, it's to introduce their own fee, which is going to go to like this 
like NFT governed DAOs they can use to do their you know, fund the things that they wanted from the original dev. So it's sort of like a like a unionization where it's like, you know, they're overthrowing the penguin overlords and all the penguins are are, you know, coming together to uh, start their own DAO that isn't 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 you know responsible to uh, the, the creator's royalties. So pretty interesting. I mean, I think it's like th- there's a lot of NFTs that have been started where the idea is, hey, we're going to have our own treasury from the start and we're going to use that to fund things for these NFTs going forward, like like NounsDAO, for example. And they have sort of their own you know community and culture around it. And then there's obviously NFTs on the other end of the spectrum, like you know, Bored Apes or CryptoPunks, where it's like, no, there's no DAO, there's no royal, like there's no fees. It's just like you guys do it, whatever, and, and we'll make some stuff. And it's almost sort of like separate. I haven't, I think this is the first like grassroots NFT DAO, um, as far as I know of, where it's like um, there's been a revolt of the initial um, sort of royalty and the initial DAO and the community sort of formed their own. So I actually like the Pengus. I think they're like, they take themselves very not seriously, which I appreciate in the, in the NFT, in the NFT world. People just like the penguins and think that they're cute. And so, um, yeah, it's been, it's been pretty interesting to see. It reminds me actually of what happened with a lot of the, uh, sort of Justin Sun and EOS communities in that we're starting to see some of these like, you know, revolt against the original creator slash founder, where basically it's like, look, you haven't held up your end of the bargain. You have some kind of block reward or some kind of perpetual reward. I mean, we just talked about this a couple of weeks ago with, uh, uh, with EOS when EOS basically ousted block one for their block reward and said, look, you guys made plenty of money. Screw off. You guys aren't supporting us. We're going to go our own way and take those funds that we were otherwise paying you and actually use it to further the protocol. And it seems like this is the first time that we're seeing the same thing happen in NFTs. And I guess the, the thing that is interesting about this as a meta phenomenon is are we going to see more of this? Is this like now suddenly we're normalizing this idea that you can start kicking out the founder? It's almost like the analogy of, you know, in, in you know, traditional companies, when a founder stops doing their job, you kick them out and you hire a professional CEO. And you like say, look, you're, you're, you, you got us to where we are, but we're, you're not going to take us the distance. And we might start seeing that as the equivalent of a community going and, you know, basically kicking a founder out and saying like, look, you, yeah, you started this, but we don't owe you anything anymore. You already got paid. Screw off. We're going to find the right kind of leadership to take over this project. In a way, it's almost a sign of governance growing up. Yeah, I think the issue has always been with, with DeFi protocols. We're like, hey, isn't the labs team or the foundation team really just developing everything? How much of this dependent on third-party developers? And like, you know, this, this is kind of what people always wanted to see, right? Which is like competing teams, you know, competing for some sort of, you know, treasury grants to, to develop stuff. And it's like, I guess it's happening in NFTs instead of in, uh, in DeFi first. Forked-based democracy at the application layer. Exactly. Well, NFTs are a weird place for it to happen, given that there's not supposed to be any more development from there. But I guess, you know, licensing and creating partnerships and all that stuff, I guess that is still work. And um, if no one's doing the work, then the community isn't going to succeed. So uh, it's an interesting development, and I'm I'm curious what's going to come from that. So last piece of news, and then we'll, we'll wrap things up. So Polymarket, which uh, I believe, uh, Tarun, you're, you're an investor in, if I'm correct. Correct. So I don't know, I don't know how much you can speak. I don't know how much you can speak to it. So maybe Tom and I can do some of the talk, talking if you, uh, if you prefer, but Polymarket, which is a prediction market um, that I believe is built on Matic or slash uh, Polygon. Um, Polymarket got hit with a fine by the CFTC for uh, basically running an unlicensed prediction market. You're not allowed to run prediction markets generally in the US. Uh, they had to pay a $1.4 million fine and then cease and desist 
offering these products any further in places where they're not allowed to. So the word on the street is that Polymarket, uh, so supposedly they need to shut down by January 14th in offering these products to U.S. customers, I assume, um, and, uh, you know, go elsewhere. Word on the street is that their plan is to potentially go overseas and continue offering the product, but just geoblock uh, American customers. Um, overall thoughts on this, Tarun, I don't know if you can say anything. If not, just wink twice and then I'll ask Tom. The only thing I will say is uh, they are alive and kicking. Their fine was quite de minimis. You know, I think fines of this form previously scared protocols into folding like a veil. Um, I don't know if you remember, there was this of kind of somewhat more similar to Polymarket, like somewhat more centralized prediction market uh, that was built on top of Augur. Of course, pre-automated market makers, so it was much more complicated. And Vale folded at, and because they were worried about a much bigger fine uh, and then perhaps would have actually been uh, alive had they gotten a similar deal as Polymarket. So I think they'll be, they'll be alive and kicking, figuring out a new way of moving on. Yeah, I think um, this the spirit and the strategy for a lot of different DeFi protocols has been start somewhat centralized, move really fast, and then decentralize over time as you get big. Um, and that way, by the time you have a target on your back, you know there's nothing really for regulators to go after. And we see a number of different DeFi protocols you know pursue this pretty well. I think Polymarket was trying to do the same thing, where starting out, okay, you know we're gonna be the ones resolving markets, and we're gonna be selecting the markets, and we're gonna sort of help you providing liquidity and just use that to sort of get the wheels turning and then decentralize over time. And I think, unfortunately, you know, you do have to decentralize uh, over time and like there is a bit of a, a ticking time bomb there. And so it sounds like that is the plan going forward is just like move up that part of the roadmap and, you know, um, uh, decentralize uh, the, the resolver for these different prediction markets, um, decentralize, uh, you know, the actual liquidity provision, et cetera. Um, but you're know, just a reminder that even if you do take the strategy, you know, there, there are people uh, watching, especially if you go around, you know, uh, advertising in Brooklyn and stuff like that. Yeah, Polymarket was always on the aggressive side, uh, especially seeing advertising campaigns in New York, of all places where, you know, it's some, one of the most restrictive places to be building a uh, decentralized product. I do think that, as you said, Tom, it's a good reminder that obviously regulators are watching, but it's also, in some sense, like there are some cases that are easier than others. So the question of like, okay, what is Uniswap? Is Uniswap liable for this or that? Is it an unregistered exchange, blah, blah, blah? It's a really hard question to answer. And I, I imagine the SEC or even the CFTC, they're, they're probably fairly averse to entering into that fight because it's going to be a really hard one to establish what exactly is the nature of DeFi and how does it fall under a regulatory regime. Something like Polymarket was just a slam dunk, right? Like obviously these guys are running a you know kind of semi-centralized uh, prediction market, offering it to people in the US, advertising in the US, that's not kosher. And so they got slapped on the wrist. The big story really in my mind is that like, look, the fine was so small. It's almost a reminder to people who are building in DeFi. They're like, look, obviously follow the law and build things that are, build things that are ultimately good for the world and kind of, you know, follow the, the, uh, uh, the guidelines that regulators have set out for you. But, you know, at the end of the day, we're not trying to punish innovators. We're trying to help them to, you know, you know, sort of, Hew more closely to the regulatory frameworks as they currently exist. But it's very clear that crypto is trying to build something new. They're trying to create new kinds of things. And so if you're building 
in a way that you are trying to move towards the right direction of saying, look, I'm, I'm, I'm building for the right reasons. I really want to make something truly decentralized, but I'm not there yet. There's probably going to be a lot more leniency for you than for somebody who says like, look, I'm just going to go, you know, pocket a bunch of ICO money. You're going to have a very different outcome. So, uh, it's, it's a good sign that the CFTC kind of approached it with that level of finesse. And uh, I hope that we're going to see the same thing through the end of the cycle with other regulators as well. With that being said, I think we're at the end of the, we're slightly, uh, slightly past the end of the hour, but we started a little bit late. So uh, that's it for this week. We'll be back again two weeks from now to chop it up again on the news of the day. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll see you, uh, we'll see you all soon.